Let's face it, living takes guts and living a full life takes a lot of guts. Igniting Courage podcast is the place you can come to get a blast of courage from real people who are clawing their way through life just like you are. We're gonna talk about big courage and also little daily courage. You'll hear people's opinions on how to build courage and how to summon it when you would rather join the circus and never be heard from again. So welcome. I'm glad you had the guts to show up for this conversation. Hey everybody, and thank you for joining us on Igniting Courage Podcast. This is my interview with my buddy, Mike Rouse. I knew Mike was cool when I met him. I've probably only spent a total of 16 hours actually in his presence, but I know from his social media and just from what I know from the running industry and from myself that he's just a cool dude. I found out he wrote a book recently and I thought, oh, cool, this will be fun to read. I had no idea the journey of courage and the journey of doing good that Mike had. And so immediately after I closed the book, I contacted him and say, hey, I need you on the podcast. So this is that interview. I hope you all enjoy it. Here it is. Well, Mike Rousey, good morning and thank you for jumping on Igniting Courage podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Ann. Good to hear from you. It's been a long You're- time since I've seen you. I know. It has been about 10 years, hasn't it? Probably. I was, uh, I met you back in like 07, 08. Yeah. Uh, at a, yeah. Fleet, a Fleet Feet Conference in Wisconsin. That's right. Wow. You got oh, a memory. Oh, uh, this brain is perfect. <laughs> That's fantastic. So what all kind of showed up for you today? I mean, we've got a whole bunch of stuff to get to because I know you've had a hell of a life. I just finished reading your book, but let's just talk about today. 8.30 in the morning. Yep. How is courage showing up for you so far today? Uh, so far, so good. I'm not a morning person. I'm a night owl. Um, and it's one of the beauties of having been in the running business for 30 plus years is that your typical running store doesn't open until 10. And so most of my appointments are starting at 10 o'clock or later. Uh, and none of them want to see you past five because they're typically busy with end-of-day stuff. So it's been a pretty sweet life in that respect. So I could get up when I woke up, do a run, do a shower, drink some coffee, and go to work. Nice. So uh, I'm not one of these guys that gets up at 4.30 or 5 to get their workout in before they go to work. The running business has been good to me in that respect. Yeah, it's always comforting to me to hear that because I always think of, you know, super fit people that are getting up at 4 in the morning, getting it early. So I'm, I'm comforted by that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think I'm pretty darn fit. I've done a lot of miles and run a lot of long, 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 crazy races. But that said, I'm usually up till midnight or 1, <laughs> whereas most people that do what I do are in bed at 8 or 9. Right. You know? Yeah, but then they're yeah. up at four thirty or five to go for their run and get their workout done. So I'm I'm kind of the extreme opposite. Well, you recently did your birthday run, right? I, well, October was my birthday run. I did uh, sixty six miles. You know, just a uh, little, little jog, a little to celebrate a year per, uh, you know, every year by running a mile for it. That's such a yeah. cool thing. Well, I want to back way up because I just finished your book, and it's zero to sixty at the speed of life, right? Correct. I Correct. just finished it, and I could not put it down. It was just so much, so much interesting stuff in there. And you opened the book by talking about the day that you went to prison, which surprised the heck out of me. So I want your perspective <laughs> on the courage of that journey and that recovery and coming out 
uh, of prison as well, sort of rebuilding your life to a very, very healthy place now. Well, you know, Ann, I, I'm a, I'm a, I try to be an honest guy. My dad always taught me to be honest and be forthright. And as long as you're telling people the truth up front, you don't have to worry about what you said because it's the truth, right? And I went through a three-year period from um, 2000, uh, excuse me, from 1982 to 1985 uh, after I'd gotten divorced that I became an alcoholic drug addict and I, all I did was lie because everything that I did was not necessarily um, socially appropriate, obviously, using cocaine, uh, $1,000 a week worth. Uh, it's not something you can just walk around and tell people about. And so, you know, I would make up a lie about where I was, where my money went, what I did last night, you know, et cetera. And then an hour later, I'd see somebody else, and, I'd, and I, my mind was so foggy, I'd think, okay, what did I tell the last person? Well, I'd ha I, I couldn't remember, so I'd lie again. And next thing you know, one lie begat another lie, begat another one, et cetera. And you didn't know what you'd said, so you just keep lying about everything. And so when I finally got through all that mess and did get charged and sent to prison, I came out with the mindset that I got into this crazy stuff being a liar and using stuff that was illegal. I got to get out of this by being honest and truthful and being forthright with everybody I talk to. So since 1987, when I was released from prison, don't get me wrong, I haven't said everything perfectly right <laughs> or honest 100%. But, but at the same time, I've tried my very, very best to be honest. And, you know, there have been people that looked at me and had little disregard for me because of my, my conviction of a felony of drug usage. But at the same time, if that's who you want me to be, then so be it. Uh, I'm not going to change you. Uh, but I'm an honest guy about what I've done, and, and I've apologized for it, and I've paid the price in prison for it, and I've moved forward with my life. Well, and I love that perspective. If that's who you want me to be? Well, you, you know, what can I do to change somebody? If, if me doing the right thing now, working my tail end off, being honest, giving back to my community and to my country, to my world, if that's not good enough for you now, 30 years later, there's nothing I could do to ever change you. You know, yeah, and so I have to just accept that and move forward and 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 take care of the people uh, and get back to the people that do respect me for what I do. So that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, you know, and I got an interesting story I'll throw in here right here. When, yeah. when I was in prison, uh, I'd, I'd grown up very successful. I was a custom home builder in, in West Texas with my dad, and very successful on the city council, uh, getting ready to run for mayor. And, you know, but I had this drug problem, and when my dealer got busted and, and turned me in as one of his, you know, guinea pigs, I thought life was over, uh, especially when I heard, you know, a federal judge say, uh, we sent you to five years in the federal penitentiary. And I literally thought life was over. And so I started my book off with that story of going to prison and how it changed my, my whole demeanor of, you know, going from a country club boy playing golf, driving a Porsche, to a man in a jumpsuit <laughs> living in a 10 by 10 uh, cell, um, being known as a number, not a name anymore. And so I, I kind of, for a moment, lost myself and thought life was over, that I'd never be the same, and that I would spend the rest of my life 
uh, working for minimum wage, living in a trailer park with three friends. That was that was my mindset. And I'll never forget one day, I'd been in about six months, and I was in a class, and they brought in a guy, and they introduced him. He'd been 15 years in the prison, and he'd gotten out, been out for quite a while, and got his life put together. And they said, we're going to... We want him to speak to you and kind of tell you about how he changed his life and got, got back on track. And so when he first started, and the first thing he said was, I'll never forget it till the day I die. He said, well, the good, I've got good news and bad news for you guys. The good news is that once you're paroled out of here, and all of you are going to parole out at some point, there's only one thing you have to change to get your life back together. And then he paused. And I, you know, I'm sure everybody was thinking like me, gosh, one thing, that's not bad. You know, anybody can change <laughs> yeah. one thing, right? And then he said, now here comes the bad news. That one thing that you have to change is everything. And I thought, wow, one thing goes to everything. That's, that's a pretty major change, right? <laughs> but he, he paused again, and then he began to explain what he meant. And I won't go into detail of, of his explanation, but what he basically said was, in a nutshell, you, you can't go back to the same friends. That's who you did drugs with or alcohol or stole or whatever you did. You can't go back to the same environment uh, because, again, that's where people know you. You've got a bad reputation. It's that, and he goes through this, this list of things that you can't do again. And I thought, wow, that's going to be very difficult. But it made sense to me uh, because, again, being on the city council, getting ready to run for mayor, everyone in town, a little town of 100,000 people, Everybody knew me. So I knew if I walked into a grocery store, they're all going to be thinking, oh, there's that guy. There's that criminal. And, and so I, it, it made a lot of sense. And so when I got out, my sister and her husband loaned me a car. A friend of mine in Dallas, 180 miles away, said he had a couch I could sleep on. And I packed my, my clothes, which is all I had after being sent to prison. I lost everything financially, cars, everything. And so I... I put my stuff in my, my borrowed car, and I drove to my friend's house and slept on a couch for a few days. And not knowing what life was going to happen, I had no money. But I walked into a running store and got a job because I had started running when I was in prison and had fallen in love with it. And so I walked into this running store, applied for a job, and got it. And, again, at the time, I'm still thinking, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be working in the back room of a running store slopping shoes, you know. Long story short, 32 years later, I've had the privilege of working for five running shoe brands and national sales manager for two of them, and I basically know everybody in the running world <laughs> and the triathlon world. I've been very, very fortunate. Yeah. You worked hard to get there, though. You know, you kept your head down. Not only during that time of working in the running survey, getting your own life together, but you also created a nonprofit for people getting out of prison to help rebuild their lives. Talk a little bit about that. It's interesting, uh, again, how this all kind of transpired because, again, when I walked out on February the 27th, 1987, out of the federal prison, again, I thought life was going to be never the same again and that I would just, you know, live my life in a very simple way and try to get back on track. Uh, so I came to Dallas, and I started going to a church, knew no one, absolutely no one in Dallas except the guy I was sleeping with, you know, on his couch. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had no friends in Dallas. It was just it was just a, a way to get away, right? But anyway, so I started going to this church, and after about a month, I met a guy. I'd, I'd been out for two months, 
And a guy walks up to me and he says, hey, my name is Joe Mosley. And I said, hi, Joe, my name's Mike Rouse. And he says, you know, I've been going here for years and years, and I've never seen you here until the last few weeks. But for some reason, I felt the need to come introduce myself to you. And I said, well, that's, that's odd, but, you know, I'm glad you did. Nice to meet you. And so we began to talk, and he, he said, well, what brought you here? And I said, well, I got a little story. I got time. I'll hear it. And so I shared with him my story of, you know, kind of what had happened in my life and the fact that I had to change everything, and I'd moved to Dallas recently. And as I'm telling him this story, he's, he's got this wry little smile on his face, and he finishes, and he says, you know, that's a great story. I, I know you're not necessarily excited about it, but he said, you've got an unbelievable story. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What do you want to do with all that? And I said, you know what, to be honest with you, Joe, I've lived my first 30 years of my life, everything was about me. Me, 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 me. What can I get? How much money can I make? How successful can I become? How many friends can I have? Everything was about me. And going through this experience, I've come to realize that it's not about me. It's about what I can do for others. And giving back is going to be much better for me than me taking from others. And he said, so what, what are you saying with that? And I said, well, what I'd like to do is knowing that I have a college degree, a loving family who's there to support me, I've owned a business, so I know, how to, I know how to work and how to run a business. And I went through all these positives. I said, but, you know, the typical guy that I was in prison with was an 8th, ninth, 10th grade education. Their family has turned their back on them because they caused so many problems. They've embarrassed them. They've used them. So the family's not there for support. They've never really worked. They were drug dealers. They were thieves. They did whatever society allowed them to do to kind of make ends meet. And so they've never really worked, and they don't have work experience. So all the negatives you can have, I've got all the positives. And yet still for me mentally, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle right now because I've got to try to put myself back together. How does that guy make it? And I said, you know, the easy way out is for him to go back to his drug dealer or the guy he was doing, you know, his crimes with and start over and make some quick, fast cash. And yet that's going to send him back, back to where he was. And so I want to be that catalyst that could help that guy get his life together. And he says, you know what, there's somebody I want you to meet. Let's meet for lunch. And we set up a time for a few days later. And so I walk in, and he introduces me to this lady who's very well-dressed, very professional-looking. And he says, Mike, this is Harriet Myers. Harriet, this is Mike Rouse. And we sat down, and Harriet, who I have no idea who this woman is, right? Never seen her before. She says, Joe's told me a little bit about you, but I want to hear your story from you. And so I shared my experience of my growing up and, you know, getting involved in drugs and going to prison and getting out, and et cetera. And she says, so what do you want to do with it? And so I, I kind of told her the same thing I told Joe. And I said, what I'd like to do is set up some kind of an organization. I know it's going to take some time to do it where I can help these guys reintegrate back into society and get their lives together. You know, for that guy that really wants to change and make a difference and not go back to what he was, I want to be there to help him. And as I'm telling this story, she starts to smile. And she says, well, I know now why Joe introduced us. And I said, okay, let me know. Tell me about you now. And she said, well, I graduated from SMU and SMU Law School, and I'm now the senior partner in Locke Prunell Rain Harrell, which was the largest law firm in Texas at the time. 
and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, how did I meet this woman, you know? Two months after coming out of prison, when I'm thinking all I'm going to ever meet is just some minimum wage buddy, here's this woman who's a senior partner in the largest, largest law firm in Texas, and I'm sitting at dinner with her. And she says, uh, I'm also the first lady that was ever elected president of the Texas Bar Association and the first lady that was ever elected as the president of the Texas Democratic Party. And I'm on, I'm on the board of the Meadows Foundation and the Communities Foundation of Texas, which are the two largest philanthropic foundations in the state. And I'm just continually amazed. I'm just thinking, how in the world am I this lucky? <laughs> and so after she's kind of told me her story, I said, so, Harriet, why, why did you want to meet me? And she says, well, my boyfriend is Nathan Hecht, Judge Nathan Hecht, who is the Chief Justice of the Texas Appeals Court. She said, because of his love for the criminal justice system and his concern for guys coming out of prison, he and I have talked many, many times about it, and we want to do something to give back to that community that wants help, you know, once they're outside. And so she said, I would love to have somebody like you to help me do that because you have the experience. You can talk to these guys, and they can relate to you. You have credibility with them. What's a lady in her 40s with a law degree from SMU, a partner in a law firm, got to do with a guy who's in an eighth-grade education and just got out of prison? I have no credibility. And so make a long story short, we partnered up, we shook hands, and we set up a 501c3 we called Exodus, which became a program to help men and women coming out of prison reintegrate back into society, put their families back together, get them counseling, help them find jobs, etc., and get their lives back on track. That's awesome. Go 32 on. years later, it's still going. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I kind of helped put it all together at first and then worked with it you know, on the side for a while, but I, I handed it off because I just didn't have time. Uh, but uh -huh. there's, a, you know, there's a board of directors, an executive committee. My, my initial board of directors was Harriet Myers as my chairman, a guy named Ed Kincaid, Judge Ed Kincaid, who was also an associate judge on the Texas Supreme Court, a gentleman named Dave Ridley, who was the vice president of Southwest Airlines, and four or five other people. And I'm like, how did I go from ex-convict, no life, no money, no friends, no nothing, to being a part of a program with these people as my board of directors and, and putting together this, this program? <laughs> it, it was astounding. We raised $150,000 in the first 30 days and, built, and purchased a building, an apartment complex, and that's how it started. Wow. That's awesome. Well, that's not the only <laughs> Well, uh, that's another interesting story. Back when I was in college in the 70s, one of my best friends was going to be a missionary, and he got assigned to work with the Kurds. Well, in the 70s, nobody knew who the Kurds was. When he told us that, we were like, who, who are the Kurds? You know, K-U-R-D-S. Never heard of it. And he says, well, it's an un unknown people group. They've never had a country. They've been kind of the outcast of the Middle East, and they live in eastern Syria, southern Turkey, western Iran, and northern Iraq. They have a little pocket there that they live in the mountains, sheep herders, uh, apple, apple growers. Uh, they don't go to school. They're not allowed to go to school by those countries, and they're literally the outcast. 
And so they can't even say who they are because they get thrown in prison for speaking their language or for telling people that they're Kurds. So they, they, they're undercover. And that's who I've been assigned to. And so I, you know, I thought it was kind of crazy. And I had no other thoughts about it from, not, from back in the early 70s until 1991 when the Persian Gulf War hit. After we had run Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, he wanted to show his military power, so he went up into northern Iraq and annihilated the Kurds again and destroyed all their villages, ran them up into the mountains, up into the high mountains, and they were at a desperate loss. And CNN began to cover it. And I'll never forget in 1991, watching CNN, and this is like 15, 16 years later after my friend had been assigned to these people, and they're talking about the Kurds in northern Iraq. And I thought, wow, there's the people my friend was going to work with, and now they're on world news. <laughs> and it was just really shocking to me. And so kind of perked my interest up. Well, fast forward about two weeks, I went to a conference uh, about how to raise money for a nonprofit. And the last speaker was a guy who walked up and had this heavy Middle Eastern accent and, and introduced himself. And he said, I'm a Kurd from Iraq. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Not only have I seen on TV just recently these Kurdish people that my friend was assigned to, now I'm sitting here listening to one of them talk. And so I went up to him afterwards and introduced myself and kind of told him my story and kind of what I was there for and all. And I said, here's my card. If I can ever help you, let me know. And... He called me the next day and he said, 2,000 Kurds have been brought to Dallas from Saddam Hussein prison camps in northern Iraq. They were literally taken out of those camps in the clothes they had on, flown over, given apartments and food stamps. They can't speak English. Their only work is herding sheep, which you can't do in Dallas, Texas, right? <laughs> and he said, so they literally have no life, but they have, they have safety, they have a place to live, and they have food. But they have no, no beds, no pots and pans. They have absolutely nothing and no way to get money to buy that stuff. And he said, can you help me? And I won't go into the long story. It would take me a day or a, an hour to tell you the whole story, Ann. But I was able within 24 hours to furnish 53 apartments with furniture and clothes, pots and pans, etc. for that Kurdish group. Six months later, they wanted to start a school in northern Iraq which was a no-fly zone in 1992. Uh, we started that school. I snuck in and out numerous times over the next three years. And we started working with Kurdish young people, teaching them democracy, English language, freedom, etc. And so uh, I go from being in prison to working <laughs> around the world, working with a, a, a people that needed my help. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. Yeah, and you really did make that shift from all about you to really helping others. It, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you know what? My, my life was so much better, you know, driving a used car, working in a running store, but giving back to people and making a difference in people's lives than it was, you know, driving a Porsche, playing golf at the country club, and, you know, living a lifestyle of debauchery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so where did the courage come from, do you think, to do all this stuff after you got out? Because you said you know, you, your self-esteem was a little beat up. You're like, yep, this is good. I'm going to end up working in the bathroom running store, being the ex-con for the rest of my life. Where did that courage come from to step out and do stuff? 
I, I really can't, I can't really pinpoint where. It just, I knew deep down, I, I mean, like I said, I grew up in a very fine family. My dad and mom were solid as a rock. They just instilled in me, you know, honesty and integrity and loyalty and truth. Even though I had that three-year period when none of that mattered, because I'd kind of gotten off on this, you know, this dark track. Once I paid that price for it, I said, you know, what? I got to go back to my roots. You know, I got to go back to what I know is right. And I made that shift. Well, and it seemed and, like those opportunities were just set in front of you. It was kind of like, here, oh, do this. Here, they, this they were. <laughs> yeah, they were. I mean, I. Like I said, running into a guy, this this church that I was going to in had 10,000 people, 10,000 oh. members. The fact that I ran into that guy in that church that morning, what's the odds, you know? Right. There's 9,999 other people he could have seen. Yeah. But he found, he found me, and I found him. Fast forward, I'm in this conference, and the last speaker happens to be a guy that I'd heard about his, his people 15, 16, 17 years earlier. And now across his path in Waco, Texas. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was just extraordinary how those kind of things happened. <clears throat> yeah. And then fast forward to 2002 when I met my running group in San Diego. I'd, I'd since been moved out there. I'd gotten to work in the, the wholesale side of business. And Mizuno had hired me and moved me out to San Diego in 1998 to take over that, that territory, Western Territory. And I met my running group on a Saturday morning, and I meet these two guys that are Six foot four, two hundred and thirty pounds. Not your typical runner, right? The rest of us are, you know, five percent body fat, five foot ten, hundred and forty pounds, and here are these two giant guys. And I went over to the coach and I said, "Who are these two guys?" And he says, "Well, they're Navy SEALs. They're here to train for a marathon." And I'm thinking, okay, they think they're badass or Navy SEALs. It's kind of cool, but you know, they're, they're not going to run with us. You know, we're we're the fastest people in San Diego. <laughs> well, make a long story short, those guys could hang with anybody. They were they were tough. They were bad to the bone. And so we became friends, and a few weeks later, they came to me and said, hey, we want to train with you for the marathon. Uh, we've got the running group, but, we, but none of them do long runs as hard and fast as you do. Can we train with you? And I said, sure. And so we'd go out on Sunday mornings and do 15, 20-mile runs together and got to know each other. And Without getting into greater detail, they became like sons to me, <clears throat> and we became very, very close. They introduced me to all kinds of different friends they had as Navy SEALs. Now I've got a community of Navy SEAL buddies that are, I don't know, 30 strong probably. And uh, the sad part of that story is that on August 6, 2011, JT, my, my, the first one I met, and my closest friend uh, as, as far as the SEALs go, uh, was killed in a helicopter crash, or a helicopter mm -hmm. shot down, sorry, uh, in Afghanistan. And it really rocked my world, because he was like my adopted stepson. Yeah. And uh, that's the reason why I started putting on a race called Jogging for Frogmen there in San Diego in his honor a year later on the anniversary of his, of his death. And there were 31 guys on the helicopter, and so I decided to do a 24-hour run and run 3.1 miles 31 times. Each lap of that 3.1 miles was to honor one of those men. And, uh, and then we put on a 5K race after, after I'd finished my 24-hour run. And that race is still going on today. Now, eight years later, we've raised about $2 million for the Navy SEAL Foundation. Wow. Earmarked for, those, 
earmarked for those 31 families. And uh, actually this Saturday, I'll be putting on one of those races here in, in Texas, uh, here in Dallas area. We've got eight races nationwide. Again, it's called Jogging for Frogmen uh, in honor of the Navy SEALs. And uh, we've got one in Pittsburgh, Virginia Beach, Nashville, etc. And so I decided to put one on here in Texas. So but all proceeds go to the Navy SEAL Foundation and to those 31 families that gave the ultimate sacrifice of losing their sons. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely put the uh, Jogging for Frogmen link on the uh, on the blog and on the podcast so that people can go and awesome. see that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we actually have a virtual race division as well. So you don't even have to be in Texas. You can be in, you know, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Miami, wherever you live. We send you the shirt, the bib number, and a medal, and you can run a 5K wherever you are. But the proceeds 100% go to the Navy SEAL Foundation. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, I think I'm going to have to do that. Appreciate well, it. Well, and now, now you, what, two years ago, three years ago, bought running store in Texas? I did. I did. That was my lifelong dream after I'd gotten into the running business. And like I say, I'd, I'd worked for a retailer for a while here in Dallas. Then I got the job with Brooks. I got a job with Brooks, moved to Kansas City. Then Mizuno hired me, moved me to San Diego. And I worked for three other brands along the way to his national sales manager. But in the back of my mind, I always wanted to own my own running store. And so three years ago, I came back to Texas to see my kids spend more time with my kids and grandkids who are still here in Dallas. And finally, about a little over two years ago, I decided, you know what, I'm not getting any younger. I've wanted to do this. It's been my dream ever since I was in prison to own a running store. Once I found running in prison, and uh, so I'm going to do it. So I opened it up, and I ran it hard for two years. I had a blast. About 30 days ago, I actually closed the store and, and retired. I had a blast doing it. It was just the time of my life. I say I had I had a blast, but I really wanted to spend more time with my kids and grandkids because at the end of the yeah. day, that's you know family's what it's all about, right? Exactly, it's what's important. And I I feel like I've given back enough down through the last thirty years to others. Uh, I need to give back to my kids as well and grandkids. Yeah, so yeah. That's, that's raise the next generation of of life changing losses. Exactly. I exactly. love it. I love it. It seems like the theme here is. Kind of say yes. You know, you said yes to helping with Exodus and said yes to helping the Kurds, and it all just kind of fell into place. If you had to give one piece of advice to people who are on the precipice of saying yes about getting that courage to do it, what piece of advice would you give them? The best advice I can give them, in my opinion, is that, you know what, you only live once. This is not a rehearsal. This is not... <laughs> a casting call, this is life, you get one shot at it. And you're going to make mistakes, you're going to have failures, but the only time you can fail, the only time you can fail is because you tried, right? If you don't try, you can't fail. So don't be afraid of failure. Be more afraid of not trying and not doing anything. Because if you don't, you're going to wake up one day and go, what was I thinking, you know? I read a book way back in the 70s by Irma Bombeck called Pushing Up Daisies. I don't know if you ever heard of it or not. At the time, it didn't mean a dang thing to me because I was in my 20s and early 30s, whatever I was. But, you know, you're thinking you're going to live forever, right? And uh, 
But she talked about how on our deathbed, nobody's going to lay there knowing that they've just got hours or days to live and say, man, I wish I had a bigger house. I wish I had more money in the bank. I wish that I had driven, you know, uh, the, the best car in the world. None of that stuff's going to matter, right? What's going to matter is what did you do for others and for your family that mattered? What did you do to make a difference? And so, again, at the time, I wasn't thinking about it. I thought I had plenty of time ahead. But once I hit 60, I realized, you know, that's the reason my book, Ann, is called Zero to 60 at the Speed of Life. Because when I turned 60, and, and I told this story, as I've told you today, numerous times, people kept saying, Ralphie, you've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. <laughs> and finally one day I said, you know what, I probably should, because I've had a pretty unique, fortunate life, in spite of me, <laughs> uh, in spite of all the times that I tried to screw it up. I've had a pretty, pretty sweet life and very fortunate. And so I was on a, on a plane back from Kona Ironman World Championships. Uh, I'd actually just seen my buddy Chris McCormick, Mecca, win the world yeah. championship. I, I'll never forget it. But I was on my way back, and I just turned 60. And I thought, you know, I do need to write this book. And as I'm looking through an airline magazine, I, I see a, an ad about a car that went 0 to 60 in whatever it was, 4.2 seconds or 4.8, whatever. But it sounded fast, 0 to 60, very fast. And I thought, well, I just turned 60 years old. And it happened really fast, you know? Uh, and so that's where the name of my book, Zero to Sixty, at the Speed of Life, came from, is that you wake up one day and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm more than halfway, I think. Uh, I'm 66. I doubt I'm going to live to be 132. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm way past the halfway mark, and I just want to go out of this world someday with the, somebody being able to say, you know what, the guy did it right. He gave back what he could. Yeah. He lived. He lived. I love it. Exactly. I love it. Well, we'll put the link so people can grab the book because it is a, it's a, a fantastic read. It's just, you're just like, you did that too? So it's, it's awesome. We'll definitely put the link on there. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to jump on the And thank you. It's my privilege. It's my privilege just to even talk to you again. It's been so long. I hope our paths cross again soon. I'd love to see you and give you a big hug. Yeah, right back at you, buddy. You keep on keeping on. Give those grandkids a hug for me. All right, will do, honey. Love you. Bye.